Welcome to a special edition of Fintech Insider. This is our first ever Fintech Insider State of the Union show. We're coming to you live from our 11FS office in WeWork, Soho South. They made me say that. WeWork did. And we're in Manhattan, the great city of New York. I'm your host, Sam Mall. I'm 11FS Managing Partner for North America. Today, I'm joined by a distinguished group of Silicon Alley Insiders. I wrote that, everybody who are going to help us discuss the state of fintech in these United States of America. So, starting from my left and listeners on your right, I'm joined by Matt Harris, who's the Managing Director at Bain Capital Ventures. Hello, Matt. Hi, glad to be here. Then we have Margot Avedisian. Margot is Executive Vice President at Transform Group. Hola, Margot. Thanks for having me. You're so famous. Look her up, everybody, and Google her. Then we have Robert Barba. He's the senior banking and fintech writer and analyst for Bankrate. Konnichiwa, Robert. Hey, how's it going? I'm doing good. He's got a radio voice, everybody. And finally, Laura, who I've known forever and still won't say her name right, Speakerman? That's right. She's the founder of Alloy. All right. So we got one heck of a group. We all want to jump literally right into this. We're going to discuss the state of, if you will. And we're going to start with Matt, all right? So Matt, what's the state of venture capital in the U.S.? Are we in a bubble? Let's start there. Are we in a bubble or is it profit? I'd say just frothy. I mean, bubbles, uh, there's an interesting chart floating around. We're here in early September and there's a great chart you can see that describes different bubbles and it shows like, for instance, the dot-com bubble or the credit bubble leading up to 08 and then it overlays Bitcoin on that and it's about 10 times as bubbly as those other two things. If you were to put like venture capital in 2017 in that chart, it wouldn't even register as a bubble. I would say- It's dead. No, I would say it's at an elevated level, but not climbing to the sky. You know, we, uh, we're obsessed with growth. Everyone's looking to invest in growthy companies. And so therefore money's flowed into venture capital, but it's not, you know, up 2x this year over last year and climbing uh, as we speak. As a matter of fact, I mean, help me if I'm right here. The first two quarters of 2017, I think we saw a definite increase in investment around here. Well, I think we're so there's venture capital broadly defined, which is flattish, maybe up a little. Then there's venture capital in fintech, which is a bit down. But I think there's something we need to understand, like an artificial element of the data, which was lending. I mean, lending as a as a thing to invest in for venture capitalists <laughs> wasn't a sector that anyone cared about until everyone got obsessed with it, particularly in 2015, but into 2016. And that was like a rat through the snake because lending companies need billions of dollars of capital. And so venture capitalists poured billions of dollars into lending companies. And as of 2017, they've more or less stopped doing that. So if you take lending out of the numbers, FinTech VC looks pretty healthy. But since lending is down overall, it looks a little bit down. Okay. Again, let's level set everybody. Every one of these people are an expert. Matt, correct me if I'm wrong. You started investing in this from a VC standpoint back in 2002. Yeah, that's right. 15 years ago. And it was not a very popular thing back then. It was less than 1% of the venture business. It really didn't even register. And um, and it remained pretty contrarian for a long time. I, I marked the, the change when Jack Dorsey started Square. That to me was like when Silicon Valley said, oh, well, if the founder of Twitter thinks payments are interesting, maybe we should pay attention to. Uh, before that, it was pretty much a wasteland where I was toiling in obscurity. So that's funny is when we go around the table, because we'll wrap up with Robert from a media standpoint, and I was going to jump all over Robert about Square trying to apply for a banking license. It's fascinating when you look at it that Square kicked this off, in your opinion? I think that was the watershed moment for, you know, venture capitalists are lemmings not so much in that we follow each other although there is a little bit of that peril but we follow entrepreneurs and that's because that's our job we really should just be putting money into the things that the best entrepreneurs are doing full stop and again when such a notable entrepreneur decided that fintech was of interest that made other entrepreneurs pick up their heads it made engineers start thinking about well geez maybe there are hard problems interesting problems to solve in financial services, and then that caught the attention of VCs and off to the races. So I'm curious again, this is the state of the union, so we're focused on the US. 
So I'm going to break every rule and jump out of the U.S. So correct me if I'm wrong. Last year, we saw a massive jump in capital going to China. Yes. A continuing trend. It wasn't out of nowhere, but it was up last year and it'll probably be up this year too. And in what specific areas? Well, there lending is continuing apace. Uh, you know, peer-to-peer lending in the United States was always a little bit of a fiction in that it was always institutions doing the lending via Lending Club Prosper and others. But in China, peer-to-peer, true peer-to-peer, where individual consumers make investments in lending products serving other consumers via marketplaces is a thing and a growing thing. And really important companies have come out of that. Credit Ease is a big one, but there are many others. And then you have massive innovation in payments. Really, you know, you had a relatively immature payments infrastructure that has leapfrogged ours in many ways through innovations in mobile payments in China. And then investment management companies like NOAA and others are, again, introducing digital distribution in ways that make United States companies look backward. So in many ways, the real fintech revolution is happening in China. So that's hilarious because what our listeners don't know is a couple of days ago, Margo sent me an email and said, dude, can you move this back a little bit? Because I have to go to China. But it's rather funny because you're not flying to China today because there's all this news around ICOs being banned in China. We'll get to that. A neat topic. But Laura, I'm going to come to you because you're a founder who has to apply for VC money and you've gone through this process. Have you seen a change over the past couple of years? Is it harder to get funding now that you're an established company? Yeah, that's a hard question because it's such a personal experience that I'd love to say yes because I just came through a painful a, you know, fundraising process of my own. So it's I'd like to think that it's a little bit harder. I think the reality is that fintech companies, early stage companies like ours take a ton of money to get going and we sell to banks. So it's we have to deal with really long sales cycles. We have to deal with building a product that will work for a bank. So it took us over a year to build a product um, just in its sort of MVP form. And that takes a lot more money than some sort of pseudo social network for pets or something. Um, it's just, a, it's a different category and it's expensive. So I think it's become clear that the money's not necessarily easy, but the at seed stage, there's still quite a bit of venture funds out there. And I think newly formed funds all the time and the money's been raised. So the LPs have already put their money in. There has to be money deployed somewhere into these fintech companies. So the visuals of this room are great because Laura's on one side of the table and Matt, the VCs on the other, almost if I set it up that way. But Matt, hearing from that, from your standpoint, what advice do you give founders that are going through like a Series A or a Series B round? What would you tell them in the current state that we're at? Well, I think that one of the issues that Laura brings up is a character of modern venture capital, which is that many times people would raise a very small seed round, get themselves up and running, and then raise a Series A early on. That's why they call it A, because it's the first thing you do. But that's all changed. Now, the seed ecosystem has really taken on the role of what used to be a Series A. And so by the time you go out for your Series A, the expectation of what you've accomplished is way higher than it used to be. And when you combine that, as Laura so eloquently said, with the onerous nature of fintech product development, where minimum viability is a way higher threshold, whether you're selling to banks or offering your own financial services type product. So I tell people like, raise a huge seed, yeah. Boy, that goes against the advice that was on HBO's Silicon Valley. I saw that episode. He said, don't raise too much money. In fintech, raising a bigger seed is almost always a better answer. I wish in my the, the two rounds we've done, I wish we both times, I wish we'd raise more money. Oh, wow. And not because we spend frivolously or anything close to it, but because it just is really expensive. And then you distract yourself for the better part of a year fundraising. So it's like being a politician. You get elected and you spend the rest of your time trying to raise cash. And it's the same amount of work for whatever money you're raising, wow. whether you're raising a million or five million. So, And this is where, you know, I think the so dogmatically raise more, dogmatically raise less. They're, they're both wrong. The key is raise to your milestone. Raise to the milestone you have to hit to raise the next round plus a cushion. Yeah. And the thing is about fintech companies, that milestone is further and more expensive than for your canine dating app or whatever, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, simpler product. And so generic advice might say, yeah, raise a seed of 1.5 million. Well, if it's a fintech company, I would say double that. Wow. So this gets back to if you're a founder and you're listening to this 
and you're in your early stages, make sure your early investors, your mentors are incredibly strong ones that can give you this advice. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, I'm, I'm biased because uh, I've been doing this particular thing, FinTech, for a long time. 2002 for Bain people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can't see me, you know, I'm extremely old. Um, but I think, I think it matters that, that your investors have FinTech experience. I don't know, Laura, I'd appreciate your take or others, but I don't think that the generic instincts of a seed investor or a VC who's never sold to banks or built products that banks can actually work with will serve you well. If, you know, as compared to an investor who's done fintech. So I think it's quite specific. Like I wouldn't say if you were starting a biotech company, I'd say raise money from someone who knows biotech because there are specific problems and challenges that you don't want them figuring out for the first time. And fintech yeah. is more similar to biotech. I than- think also from, I would imagine from an investor's perspective, if you're a sort of generic, you know, consumer VC or something else that you're not used to fintech and sort of the, the specific qualities it has, You'd be sitting there going like, what, why did I give you money if you haven't done anything in a year? You know, the expectations are totally different. And so you want, I wanted someone who was, I wanted investors who were patient, who were sort of willing to go to bat for us, even though we hadn't gotten a customer signed up in six months plus. And then, you know, we did. And then it was a huge deal because it was a bank and that was great. But the, the, the mindset is completely different. So, Robert, I'm curious from your standpoint, from the media side, you're following a story and you've done this for several years now, do you think there's an apathy toward fintech now? The stories about, oh, Lord, we've raised $360 billion. I mean, do you still think there's the excitement around this? I mean, fintech was a sexy beast forever and a day, and now Margo and her ICOs are. Congratulations, Margo. But, right, don't you, do you think the story we've been chasing forever, is that still what's hot? I always will think that following the money is the most interesting thing. I mean, that kind of is at the root of being a business journalist. It, following where money is being invested of, you know, as the tech editor of American Banker, which is the job I had prior to where I am now, I didn't write that often. But when I did, my favorite stories were the ones about venture capital and asking them, what are you, what interests you right now? What gets you going? What doesn't? Even as you were talking now about the the trends, I had a, I had 10 questions wanting to ask, well, well, why is this? Well, what happened there? How is this? Like, if you talk about the Jack Dorsey sort of lighting the fire for it, how then do you transition from Square to lending? Was it just, what was that connection? Well, I, the, the sort of waves of FinTech, from my perspective, have been clearly payments, then lending, then investing, then insurance. Right. And we're kind of in the fifth inning of insurance right now. Yeah. And there's actually an open question about what comes next. A lot of people say real estate and all the tech around that. And some people, to Laura's, I think, thesis say, it's actually about the banks. It's about the banks being finally galvanized by all these fintech companies into doing the right thing and therefore being a vendor to a bank is a great place to be in this next phase. And then and finally, and we'll get to it, there's the digital currency crowd who say like, well, it's about overthrowing the whole system. But I think to how payments got to lending, it really, it's about kind of permission to play. So pre-square, the idea that an entrepreneur would feel like, oh, I could tackle that problem mm-hmm. or that an engineer would start working on payments type problems. It just seemed out of the out of scope. And then once payments is in scope and you're talking about, boy, I saw that thing and I just, I paid with that card. I made money move using technology invented in Silicon Valley. It's not that far a leap to give yourself permission to think about lending. You know, it's about like, what problems do we have permission to solve? And I think payments was kind of the gateway to the harder problems because lending is a harder problem than payments. It also meant a lot more digital data. Yeah. Like once you had all this payments data, you sort of, which didn't exist before, you now have this world you can open up. Oh, all of small business lending yeah. is driven by the fact that payments are now digital. We talk about a problem to solve. So Margo, great segue to you for the next segment, right? Because Margo and the ICO crowd, if you like, you've solved this. We've, we've got cryptocurrencies. Yay. Talk to us a little bit about what Transform Group is, the company you work for. Before I talk about that, a little bit about my background is in 2012, I was raising money from traditional VCs for the first American Bitcoin exchange. And so I met with Andreessen, uh, Founders Fund. So I've done the traditional 
finance, tech finance startup going that route. And even with my last startup, uh, we were going that route. And now we partnered with an Indian bank and we're helping them move money without having to use the corresponding banking network with cryptocurrency as an intermediary. So I get the whole kind of old school world now with this whole new school twist. Um, at Transform Group, uh, since early 2013, we started representing blockchain companies for PR. We did the first ICO and we also did Ethereum's ICO, which a lot of people probably know. And now we've done over 30. I think we have around 25 clients right now. We get inundated. And so I feel like we do a lot more than just PR and getting them press. We do a lot of business advice. Uh, Michael Turpin, who originally started it, he formed the first and largest blockchain or Bitcoin syndicate. So now we're kind of at the forefront, blowing everyone else away in terms of how to do an ICO. And it's this crazy time right now. We're definitely in a bubble, but it kind of makes you look at VCs like do you, you don't really need them. State of the Union, back to it. We're transitioning to the next category, which you introduced really well, Margo. What's the state of crypto? And more importantly, what the hell, you're allowed to swear in this podcast, what the hell is going on with ICOs? So let's let's define what an ICO is, if you don't mind. And then as my teenage daughter would say, are we in a burble? What's going on? So an ICO is when a blockchain company sells a token, usually before they have anything built. Now what we're seeing are actually established companies. An example is Unicorn. They're the largest esports betting company that is now adding a blockchain element. So in countries that don't really have banking systems or they can't get bank accounts, now they can be using their own cryptocurrency to participate in this esports betting. So these companies with a blockchain element sell these digital tokens they make. And for the most case, the digital token needs to have a use, otherwise it's a security. So an example is there's a company called Gollum and they're creating a platform where uh, you can basically rent people's computer energy. So if you're doing something like CGI graphics, it takes a long time, a lot of energy. You can rent people's computers that they aren't using to use that energy, kind of crowdsourcing. So you pay them with the token, the Gollum token. And in order to rent, you need to have this token in order to pay these people for letting you use their energy. And then there's a secondary market exchanges where people are then able to sell tokens. And that's where people, that's really why people are getting involved because the change in price is just insane. The return is crazy. When Ethereum did their token sale, I think it was around three cents. Now it's around $350. Oh, that's nuts. I know someone who has a digital currency fund, their hedge fund. He put in around $100,000. So now they have a $400 million fund. And it's now gotten to the point where there's a few funds where the funds are investing in buying these tokens. And it's definitely a bubble because, I mean, this company just raised $200 million. We had another company raising $140 million. I'm advising a company. And even in the pre-sale, we have people who want to take the whole $100 million round. That's insane when you haven't built anything yet. So, well, once these companies don't build anything, if they doesn't get anywhere, then that's, I think, when we're going to start seeing some harder crackdown. One of my favorite tweets I saw was if HBO Silicon Valley season five doesn't have an ICO as part of the script. <laughs> There's just no way that's not going to happen. Robert, I, I want to come to you on this. You just heard what Margot said, you know, raising $400 million and not having a product out yet. How do you react to that? Well, I mean, look, I, I'm going to first admit that I know not enough about ICOs. But uh, the journalist in me would want to know, Tell me more about this bubble because that's what it sounds like. I want to know exactly how this is going to work. I, I think the best question that a journalist can often ask in order to understand these sorts of things is talk to me about what this looks like five years from now. That's a good question. Because that gives you a little bit of imagination and a little bit of time to grow. And that way you can sort of lay out the path of what this looks like down the road and what these companies are looking to achieve. Um, that's probably the question I would ask. Well, you're taking away the middleman, which is... 
empowering and also, okay, there we have a company pre-search, which is a decentralized Google. The guy who started it had a company and was accidentally delisted from Google and search results because they blocked, they didn't realize who they blocked. And that then had him come up with a decentralized Google where people in the community can help tailor the algorithm instead of one company that's tailoring the algorithm based on its own financial benefits. Yeah, I think there, I mean, there are certain types of human activity that lend themselves to decentralization. And I do think almost all of them should have tokens and they'd be crazy not to monetize their tokens. I mean, in this environment where people have, have all this Ethereum and no place to put it, buying tokens seems like it makes sense for folks. And I do think VCs are going to be crowded to the side of companies built on decentralized architecture. Or they can get involved. So there's a company called uh, Blockchain Capital. They are traditional VCs. They invested in more blockchain companies than anyone else. They created their own token. And it was actually a security because you're getting returns. So if you, as an accredited investor, bought this token, they're investing money from raising money with this token into other companies or other tokens. And then you're getting a return from that. So VCs, I mean, they're kind of slow to move in pretty much everything. So maybe they'll start getting pushed towards uh, looking at this more seriously or figuring out how to change their structure so they can start investing in tokens, which is essentially, I mean, I don't want to go that far, but it is kind of investing in a company. I mean, in most cases, it's not a security to say that many, many times because we don't really represent tokens that are securities. And that's a whole other can of worms in terms of regulation and uh, how to structure. Uh, but it is the future. It is what people are doing. And Let's circle back on that because remember, we joked about this, but you literally were due to fly to China today. And then we had the news about China and the ICO ban. So can you talk about China when it comes to cryptocurrency and mining with Bitcoin? Yeah. I, I mean, there's there's a huge crypto community in China. Um, they have a couple of the largest exchanges, not the largest exchange, but they have a lot of exchanges. Uh, they, they fudge their numbers a lot. They, uh, I mean, Bitcoin was banned in China at one point and you couldn't get money in exchanges. I, I do have some information that China is actually pretty bullish on uh, blockchain technology. And I know that they are partnering with a company uh, that's all I can say right well, now. Like Russia is with Ethereum. The news just came out about that. Right, Robert? I've seen the headline. I can't remember the uh, yeah, specific. Yeah, I meant to ask Vitalik about yeah, that. Yeah, they have. This story came out. With we'll, consensus? Yeah, we'll put a link in here, but Russia looked at this. Well, I know they looked at it and they met with Vitalik, but I, I don't. you don't necessarily know what that means. Yeah, well, the Ukraine partnered with Propy, which is a real estate blockchain company. So the level of involvement, but China just announced that ICOs are illegal. People are very worried about that, but I mean, they banned Bitcoin and they unbanned it. If you want to invest in, in crypto, there's really no way of stopping you. Uh, definitely when they block American citizens from buying, there are ways to do it. Uh, I mean, I'm not recommending that, but I'm just saying it's possible. So it's kind of like the genies out of the bottle. So it's, it's neither here nor there. Uh, but I'm not saying do anything illegal in China because that's really scary. <laughs> I'm not going to China anymore. No, when we God. do the next episode, we'll do a Google Hangout from whatever prison you are in China. It'll be awesome. So, Laura, I'm curious from your standpoint, because we're going to talk to you about compliance later and the regulatory side with your company. When you hear this, and Matt, I'm going to give you a chance to chime in, but the whole cryptocurrency space has moved incredibly fast. The ICOs year, I'd say this past year has exploded Really? Past six months? I mean, like a rocket ship. Yeah, the last year, I would say. Maybe oh. a little less than a year. But now it's just everyone's everyone's doing an ICO. They don't even have a blockchain component. They just want to sell a digital well, token. And it's well, really annoying. I'm wrong, but Paris Hilton just backed one. Did you right? see the one she backed? Did you? The guy that started it is the, is the exec in Silicon Valley who beat his girlfriend and like didn't really get in trouble for that. So... I don't really know if I'd take Paris Hilton's financial investing advice. Uh, I think that's all like, my Facebook ads are about token sales right now. Yeah, my LinkedIn, by the way, has exploded with messages. We're doing a token sale. I mean, I've been deleting more emails over the past two months dealing with this topic. Laura, we'll talk about your company a little bit, but it's on KYC and on the regulatory side of this. 
What words of caution, I guess that's a nice way of putting it, what makes this safer? Because honestly, uh, Matt, especially don't laugh, the, the regulators have no clue about crypto. I mean, the SEC just came out with something and they told an ICO to stop what they're doing. They've known about this for a really long time. I've had meetings with them. They they know what's going on. Uh, they just came out with something with the DAO that caused Ethereum the split that what they did was a security, but they're not coming after them probably because they really failed in what they did. But it's I know two people who went to prison for running unregulated money transmitters and uh, exchanges and I come from the exchange world of starting related three. to crypto or yeah they, there, okay. two two crypto exchanges and it's something you don't mess around with and even from the beginning we were very overcautious but it's it's fintech is not like you know you just build something it doesn't matter about the rules and you know then you'll figure it out no you will legit go to jail if you do something that's not following the rules even if there aren't any rules written yet you can still figure out what you know possibly what's worst case scenario it's going to be. So when does Alloy pivot and become a, a crypto? <laughs> when we're doing an ICO? Yeah. Not anytime soon. Yeah. yeah, I think I think what we've seen, this comes from sort of past experience at a payments company as well, but the first wave of crypto entrepreneurs and companies, you know, a few years ago were totally nuts and they didn't care at all about regulatory sort of risk that they were taking. Um, and to their credit, not that many of them ended up in jail as far as I know. So but but not not many of them succeeded either. And then the subsequent wave of sort of crypto 2.0, I think, have been uh, have come from more legitimate sort of compliance oriented backgrounds, um, not necessarily from compliance departments, but are sort of aware of the risks that they're taking. Um, and I think have been smarter about the way that they're going about it. I don't know much about the KYC happening in ICOs. I've sort of as a user, I've tried to check it out a little bit, but I haven't really been able to figure out other than that most of what seems to happen is that you're going through Coinbase or another sort of regulated and appropriately KYCing wallets in certain cases that, that limit some of it, but they're still taking on a huge amount of fraud. So it's not so like I you're actually, this is why yeah. This. yeah, actually that no. So if you are participating in ICO, you do not want to send crypto from an exchange because basically you're sending it to an address and then it bounces back. But if you're in an exchange, it's all mixed together. So definitely do not send crypto from an exchange if you're participating in ICOs. A lot of the ones that I see will block US citizens to try to be more cautious. Uh, now with the SEC ruling or the what they put out, they're starting to do this thing called SAFT. And so they're treating it like a security and in a lot of cases, they're only, or some cases, they're only taking accredited investors. Um, but there's a platform. I I'm, I want to say they partnered with AngelList. Yeah, yeah. AngelList. Yeah. Yeah. AngelList. Yeah. And that, that was Filecoin. They raised $200 million. So now it's actually getting even more more regulatory cautious, these ICOs. I mean, of course, there are people just doing whatever, but we definitely don't work with people like that. And because there's so many and the market's becoming so crowded, uh, it's, you're not really getting any visibility if you're really shady. And if you are really shady, the one thing of doing something that's so public is you have all these people looking at you, investigating you, saying whether or not you're a fraud. And then you, even after you raise the money, you have all these people constantly wanting updates. It's not as easy as it looks of just raising all this money. It's a lot of work that goes into it. And then it doesn't just end once you get the money. You have people all over you constantly, the community, the people who gave you money, wanting to know, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why did this happen? What's next? And why didn't you have any updates? I would say as a founder, it's one of the reasons I'm not like, I mean, in part because we really have nothing to do with blockchain technology today, right. but um, largely just as a founder, I wouldn't want to raise, we, we have a company we know that's raised over $100 million in ICO, I'm pretty sure they have no idea what to do with the money. Well, that's, um, that's and there's no point. there's no Matt sort of in your board meetings telling you, you know, here are the milestones you need to hit or yeah. hire this person as your CFO or whatever. And I, and I value that as a founder. Uh, and I coming back to sort of the, the venture capital world, I like some of the, the strings that come attached to the money. Well, it's a good place to take a break. But Matt... I'm going to give you the last word. I'm calling you the sage in the room, even though I'm probably older, but you're the sage in the room. When you look at this, because you've been around, we've talked about this, you've been investing since 2002. 
these innovation waves aren't new, right? I mean, we, we had the Wild West when payments first came out. We had the Wild West in lending. It tends to self-correct or be guided via regulations to correct. So what words of advice would you give when you look at this? My first reaction to this is it is easy to dismiss, and that would be a mistake. Uh, so I think, you know, for VCs in particular, you know, a lot of them get defensive and then seize upon those aspects of the ICO phenomena that are disreputable and are questionable and say, look, this is a joke. This will end in tears. We've got nothing to worry about. And I think that's wrong. I think what it's going to do is separate out the aspects of value of a venture capital firm. Money's part of it. Advice is another part of it. Good governance and experience is another part of it. But the money part may actually be easier to get elsewhere over time if this open architecture succeeds, as I think it will in some form. And so we're going to have to sell something different as VCs. The money will be probably cheaper elsewhere, and we're going to have to appeal to those founders who actually want us to be useful. Okay, well, this is a great time for us to take a break and hear from our sponsors. But first, we just want to say we've never had enough time to cover every news story that's happened in the past week on the FinTech Insiders, especially when it comes to ICOs, dang it, Margo. But don't forget... You can head over to fintechinsidernews.com to hear about the stories we've discussed and many others besides that. You can also sign up to become a contributor and join the discussion with everyone on this podcast and many of the other fantastic names from the fintech world. Just look at fintechinsidernews.com. And now let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to ft.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank. And the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the innovation acceleration platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.terminos.com. Welcome back to Fintech Insider's State of the Union. So far, we've discussed the state of venture capital and the state of cryptocurrency. Now we'd like to focus on the state of compliance. We actually recorded this segment after the original podcast recording because the Equifax data breach announcement literally came out as we finished the show. I asked Laura Spikerman, the co-founder of Alloy, if she would talk with us about the impact of this event on the financial services industry. First, let's let's talk about Alloy, all right? So this is your, your chance to give us the 30-second overview of what Alloy is. Certainly. So Alloy is a software system that helps regulated financial institutions, so banks, insurance companies, fintech companies, manage their onboarding and know your customer systems, basically. So it lets a bank, for example, customize an onboarding flow that meets their regulatory requirements while making sure they're converting more customers and giving them a a more streamlined and efficient back office process for managing all of the paperwork and audit trails and all that fun stuff. And you're doing that via API um, connectivity, right? We are. We're doing it via API. Yeah. So it's a an API that aggregates a bunch of different data sources that you need and then helps you uh, figure out what sort of onboarding flows make the most sense for your customers. And how long have you guys been around? We started the company uh, in about middle of 2015, so two and a half years. So um, for our listeners that haven't heard your background story, and, and I love this about you because we're going to actually, believe it or not, I'm going to somehow tie this into the Equifax breach, which we will get to. Your degree is not in cryptology. It's not in tech. You were studying law. I wish. <laughs> Did you just say <laughs> I wish? Be a lot more useful. Yeah. <laughs> oh, come Definitely. on. So, but but you, you uh, studied political science, yeah. I think, right? Or law? I did. I studied, I studied political science, um, sort of anticipating that I'd go to law school. And actually, white. I, I, after college, I worked at a law firm that specialized in white-collar criminal defense. Uh, and that's actually probably where I got my interest in in financial services, believe it or not. Um, I worked there at the start of the financial crisis, so it was a good moment to kind of be involved in all things white-collar crime. And at that point, I decided I didn't want to go to law school. I had gotten in, and I moved to the West Coast to start, and then 
freaked out about what that meant and what my life would be like. And so at that point, I actually moved to Nairobi, Kenya, where I was the first employee at a startup called Copo Copo, uh, which is still around, still doing well. Um, It's in the payment space. So we created a a layer on top of the person-to-person payments system there, which is called M-Pesa. We created a layer for small businesses to be able to, to use mobile money uh, to disperse payments and collect from their customers, all of that stuff. Um, and now it's actually originating loans. So doing sort of the square cash model, or sorry, square capital model in, in Kenya. So lending to SMBs there, which is pretty exciting. You know, when I was young and I freaked out about life, I got drunk. I did not move to Nairobi. <laughs> I did get arrested stealing a camel in Morocco, and that's a whole oh, nother God. story for a different episode. But <laughs> what what was it? What was your family like when you when you said, "Hey guys, I'm uh, I'm how old were you when you moved to Nairobi?" Oh gosh, I was probably 23, 22, 23, something like yeah. that. Um, how did that life decision go over with mom and dad? Yeah, Just it curious. Was, it was you know they were my my mom has been super supportive of me basically no matter what I do. Um, I think I could probably push it and she'd, she would, she'd struggle to, to criticize me for, for basically anything. Um, both of my parents were lawyers, so it's, it's not, you know, I think they, they knew that kind of good and bad. And I sort of always thought that was the only path, but they were supportive. My mom was very supportive when, when I decided to move to Kenya, I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. And I, you know, so still some days feel like I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life, but uh, but so far so good, just sort of listening to, to my intuition in terms of telling me what I feel like doing that day, month or year. It's worked out well. So, so how did you go from working at Copa Copa, mm-hmm. um, and, and around payments, you know, if you will, yeah. and to go from that, to move back to the U S and start, um, a, basically, uh, a KYC compliance yeah. company. What so, was the, what was that? Yeah. So I became in Kenya, there were kind of two things that happened. One, I was really, I became really interested in financial services infrastructure. So I was enthralled by the idea that all this existed, all these M-Pesa and, and everything that followed um, had existed because of this amazing infrastructure, which was actually telco infrastructure, but it also meant that the central bank had let the, had let this kind of flourish. So there were a lot of components to it, but it was really, it started from the ground up by kind of these big corporates and governments, which you don't, you don't see everywhere, that kind of innovation. Um, and then the second thing was that I was interested, you know, I, we had been fundraising for the company. We ended up raising money uh, back in California from Vinod Kosla and some other people. And I became interested in sort of how do you, just how do you get funding as a so- software startup in Nairobi or, you know, in, in Mumbai or wherever it was. So I took a couple of years, uh, back in California, worked for an investment advisor company that focused on emerging markets investments. So I, I primarily was investing into venture capital and private equity funds in India, sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. Very, you know, very fortunately had the chance to invest in a lot of financial services stuff. So a lot of tech, a lot of fintech, a lot of um, kind of infrastructure-related stuff. And so it sort of was this perfect uh, intersection of my interests. And then a couple of years into that, I got a little bored of, of doing the, the fund investments. You know, it was a little too high level for me, um, sort of representing LPs, which was, it was really fun while it lasted, but I really wanted to go back and get my hands dirty myself. And so that's when I met my current co-founders who were at a payments company at the time, and um, I, w- I was really intrigued still by payments infrastructure. And specifically, I was interested in non-credit card payments. So I was looking for, you know, the sort of interchange in credit cards is always kind of a sticky issue, right? We charge merchants a ton of money to use credit cards. And I, I really was interested in, in avoiding that and sort of ways you could go around it. We have this old clunky system in the United States called ACH payments. And I was interested in how you could leverage that better. And so we, we came up with a way to do kind of faster payments using ACH. Um, and that brought me to where I am today. So what we discovered was that eight payments were a huge part of financial services online, right? Funding a brokerage account or, uh, trading currencies or whatever you need to get money in and money out quickly. And the other component there is compliance. So we, we've discovered that Compliance was a huge issue. We saw that banks and fintech companies were turning away, uh, you know, fifty percent of customers in many cases because they just couldn't properly identify them. Not because they were bad customers or bad credit. It was just 
we can't, you know, we can't completely validate your name, address, social security number, et cetera. Um, and there's no great government database for that stuff. So, so we decided to try to solve that problem, which is when we left and started Alloy. So this whole concept of um, digital identity, which has been, it's, it's not a new topic, right? I mean, uh, our, our, our good friend Dave Birch for years has said identity is new money. And I think we've all come to that conclusion that the way we, we currently do a digital identity and we, and we do the validation of a user is incredibly dated. Um, I think I shared with you my favorite tweet by um, uh, Diana Biggs from over in the, uh, the UK where she said, after the Equifax hack, she said something like, well, now time to change my mother's name and, and last four of my social again. I love that tweet. It's still my favorite. So as a company who is focused on KYC and AML, so, so know your customer, anti-money laundering, um, the compliance side of, of validating this is who a user is. When you look at an event like the Equifax hack that we've gone through, so I, you correct me if I'm wrong, I think 143 million customers, right, have, yeah. have been hacked, which is basically, basically all the adults. Anyone who's ever had a credit card. Yeah, I mean, it's 350 million in the U.S. You figure the adult population above 18 are all screwed. Right. Everybody's hacked. When do you think it's time to overhaul <laughs> this system and say, here's how we're going to do identity in a digital age? Yeah. The time is now or, you know, a year or two ago. Amen. Um, yeah. I, I wish we'd done it sooner. Um, I think what we're seeing. So, so the good news is that I think we are seeing more and more companies and by companies, I mean, both fintech companies like sophisticated developer driven fintech companies and banks uh, and insurance companies for big legacy institutions, we're seeing everyone realize that they need to take a risk-based approach um, to validating an identity and, you know, to doing the the other kind of related things like checking anti-money laundering lists and all that fun stuff. When you, um, when you say, and I don't mm-hmm. mean to interrupt, but when you say a risk-based approach, can you, can you expound on that just a touch? Yeah. What do you mean by so, that? Yeah. So, so, you know, the, the, the Bank Secrecy Act passed in the seventies and then the subsequent sort of strengthening of the the identity requirements in and after the Patriot Act weren't very prescriptive about how you check an identity, right? So if someone's, if the regulators say to you, hey, you you have to validate Sam's identity, what am I supposed to check? You're, you know, I'm not sitting in front of you anymore because we're doing this online. What what should I be asking you for? Your address, your name, your social security number? Um, And so in the past, it's been kind of those pieces of information, but there's no great um, set of databases that we're told to check. And so the risk-based approach means know the risks you're taking and be able to prove the risks you're taking, right? So have a nice little paper trail that follows this, but shows, hey, look, I checked, I asked Sam for his name, his address. I checked Experian or Equifax for these pieces of information. I looked at LexisNexis. I looked at, I did a scan of his driver's license. So you want to sort of create a, a paper trail to everything you're doing and know where you have, you know, where, where the risks are that you're taking. And that's what the regulators want to see. And I think we're seeing more and more companies kind of migrate in a direction of, of a more holistic identity. So instead of just saying, Hey, if your address doesn't match, you're screwed. Cause everyone's address, you know, it's, it's not a really, it's not a very good piece of, of information oh, about you. Yeah. yeah you horrible. move, you move, people move every couple of years. If you're young, you may not have a, a real, you know, you're living at your parents' house or whatever it is. I just um, went through it. I, I did a, a rollover into an IRA from my fidelity account and the address was from almost 15 years ago. <laughs> Which wow. made me laugh. Yeah. I had to look at it and go, when was that? And it was pre yeah. me moving to the UK. So <laughs> it was pretty old. Yeah. So they have no, I mean, that's a terrible piece of information about who you are. Um, and so now I think we're, we're, we're starting to see people take it a little more holistically and say, look, okay, Sam's address is probably not a good piece of it. We'll still collect it and hope we can find his address, but let's also look at his, uh, his presence online, his email. Let's look at his, uh, you know, Facebook on, accounts. When did he open them? Let's look at um, his cell phone data, right? That tells you probably you use your cell phone every day. You pay your, your bill every month. They probably know about you more about you than your address would reflect. So I think we're just, we're seeing a, a much better kind of system emerge. And I hope that, I hope that trend continues. Yeah. I've, I've jokingly, and it's a joke, everybody, but I have jokingly given presentations on how the, the porn industry is better at analytics and knowing their customers than banks are. Semi jokingly. <laughs> yeah, semi jokingly to some yep. degree. They, they really are. They know the true you. Um, yeah. you know, yeah, your presence online incredible. you know, indicates probably a lot more than 
than what your offline presence does. So yeah, well, it's a, probably a truer reflection, actually. <laughs> In all honesty, when you pull those data points together. Well, I've said this a couple times. I said it when we were on the show in New York two weeks ago. Alloy, one of my favorite companies, still is. Thank you. You're one of my favorite founders, co-founders. Thank you. Can't wait to see you strike it huge. And um, please help out Equifax, for the love of God. Please. We we like them. Um, We... Uh, yeah, we, I think there's a lot to learn here. And I think we will, by having this come out the way it did, it's really unfortunate. And I hope that they're able to rectify it for these zillions of customers. But um, it's a good wake up call for, I think, for all of us and for all of those those companies, those uh, the credit bureaus and other ones who who handle our PII, that this is a, this is a very big deal. Well, and it's not the last one. It, this is yeah. in no way the last hack that we're no. going to go through. So. Yeah. Be well and aware mind, of that. Mind your patches when they happen. I mean, it's just, it's sort of <laughs> crazy, but. <laughs> yeah, if you're using Apache struts, for the love of God, don't wait, you know. Please. Four months to actually put <laughs> the patch right. in. There's, there's, there's a reason. You know what they need to do? Change the name from patch to like, I don't know, life support or something. Patch is something probably too cool. nice. That's right. Yes. Make it seem a lot more yeah. critical because apparently it is. Yeah, it, apparently. All right, Laura, thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Sam. Nice talking to you. So let's move on to the state of media. And and in the current U.S. environment, this is a weighty, weighty topic. We've heard lots of noise around fake news and the responsibility of the media to get the story right. Um, Robert, do do you think this criticism is fair? And specifically, is the tech media contributing to the hype when it comes to AI or or blockchain or whatever the heck the, the hot topic is for the day? Are you partly responsible for the boiling undercurrent of frustration with the hype cycles we're hearing about. The responsibility for any journalist is to get it right, or as close to right as you can when you're dealing with nebulous topics, right? I, I think it's it's a difficult thing. When you're covering publicly traded companies, it can be a bit more transparent. There's an earnings statement. You can look at it. You can follow the money. And if there's something up, you can dig in and look for what happened. But when you're dealing with new concepts coming up and and things that are not as easily measured, the only obligation you have is to try to get the story right and tell it in a way that is accurate and measured. And I think that you're, the answer is both. I think we probably have contributed to the cycle, and I think that we should probably contribute to the uh, coverage of its evolution and its growing pains and its bubble bursting and things like that. Which isn't new. I mean, Matt, to your point, We've talked about the different cycles we've gone through. So, Margo, right now you're on the on the cutting wave, right? You're riding the wave, but you're also in a role with Transform Group from a marketing and PR standpoint. I hate the word PR, but you know what I mean. I mean, you're helping them out. But it's important to educate the press, educate the regulators, educate the folks that are doing these things. You've raised $400 million to an ICO. Yay! Oh, God, now what do we do, Right. I mean, so you have a responsibility within your group to do this. Yeah, I mean, we definitely look at all these things. Uh, but in terms of the media, I think one, it's just like with anything that's in, important and that you have access to a lot of people, I don't think reporters get paid enough to really learn all these crazy new concepts. And I don't think there's any real accountability in the news. So there is no sort of rating system. People can just say whatever. You can be on Fox News and say complete lies and there's no accountability for that. The president can say fake news and now people don't believe things. But what does news even mean anymore? So if you're dealing with these complicated concepts that could actually have all these positive benefits on society, but the people writing about it don't understand it and aren't able to then articulate it in a way for people to understand it, then you're really doing everyone a disservice. I mean, I can't tell you how many things I've read the CEO of Bitcoin's in jail. That's a good point. One thing I think is interesting, the definitions of everything are changing. Definition of banking, what that means has changed. And it's been changing since the 90s. So the definition of what banking is and identity, right, Laura? So the definition of what news is, my number one source for news, Robert, don't take this wrong or kill me for this. When a story breaks, I go to Twitter because I get a real-time feed. I mean, that's where I tend to go with breaking news. I live in Florida. A hurricane's about to wipe out my house, and I'm in New York. Twitter's my lifeline right now. National so, Hurricane Center should be. Well, I mean, there's a local guy in, in Jacksonville who does the news, wears a bow tie, he's really cute, who does the weather. He's the one I follow because I'm getting that local aspect. So as a reporter, and one that I like, Robert, and I've followed for years, I think we're entering 
fascinating territory here. And politics, Margo, you nailed it. The politics have kicked into this within the U.S. right now. And I think we're struggling as a country with what's facts and what aren't. And what's the responsibility of the media and of the press when it comes to this? So I'm actually going to give you the last word on this, Robert. I actually am. How do you look at that? And how do you, as somebody, again, that's in this, help drive this forward? Obviously, you and Margo are going to leave here and go drink a bottle of vodka I bought. That was potato vodka from Iceland to discuss this. How do we gain back that trust? Well, look, I, I would probably go back to what I said. The commitment is to making sure that this story is right. I'll talk a bit about my career. I spent the last decade at American Banker. Uh, American Banker writes for a very, very intelligent group of people who are in the know. Yeah. And so you have to, you're, the point of that is to give them the insider details, the analytical view. You have an obligation to your readers to give that to them. What I've done, what I'm doing now is at Bankrate, I'm writing for consumers and they want to know this is their money. This is their livelihood. And so the obligation to make sure that you're describing these things accurate and in a way that is approachable. Like I would love to tell a story. I've written a story that is a lot of other people have written, but it's, should I be considering cryptocurrency? I thought about, well, should I be considering a token sale? But let's, let's start here. Let's look at what is a, a crypto, what is cryptocurrency and should I be investing in it? And I would love to tell that story of a token sale, but until I can very clearly explain to them what it is and how it's going to work, I don't know that I'm really ready to tell that story to them. So, folks, here's what I'll tell you for the listeners. Keep listening to this show. Listen to Blockchain Insider. Listen to Fintech Insider. Follow the folks. We're going to give you every single person in this room the opportunity to follow them. What we're trying to do is find the best and brightest. Honestly, there's too much noise. There's too many, and apologies for everybody here, because I know Matt's on those lists and I'm on the list. But those fintech influencers, ban that word. But honestly, what we want to do on this show, and it's folks like this in this room, we want you to follow every single one of them, engage with them in conversations on whatever platform is your platform of choice, whether it be Facebook or Medium, whether it be Twitter, or whether it be email, find them, hunt them down. Listen to Margo's podcast on Brooklyn Free Radio or whatever the heck it is. I get that right, Margo? Yeah, but I'm, I, it's just on iTunes now. I don't have time to do live shows every iTunes week. iTunes is okay. Matt, Matt's doing well. Bane, I think you'll be around for a while. Laura, definitely come back on. And let's talk about compliance. And I want to thank everybody for listening. On that note, I want to wrap up the show. This has been our first FinTech Insider State of the Union. And I want to thank each of our guests for sharing their expertise with us. And, and it is expertise, folks. This has been a lot of fun. As always, if you want to get in touch with us, find us on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or on Facebook or on the Fintech Insiders page from our website. If you like what you heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. It has to be five stars. That's our, that's our rule. If you're not going to leave us a five-star rating, go leave a review for another podcast. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. I'm really looking forward to continuing this series going forward. <laughs>